the only thing I say is when I was trying to low dose for like two weeks, it's almost that uh, I almost felt it was making me depressed. So I took uh, modafinil 100 milligrams four hours and 27 minutes ago. I have my modafinil protocols on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So when we're looking at modafinil, I, I love you said that because that's like literally one of my favorite neurological-based drugs. Let's look at it, okay? Excitatory, arousal, and all that kind of cool stuff. But the cool thing about it is given its structure and how it's utilized by neurological tissue, it's not like an Adderall constituent. Welcome to another episode of The Shredder Show. Today, I've got a huge guest, which is Alex Kikel. So Alex came across my radar because uh, he's coaching one of my great friends, Frank Dunblanken, who referred to him as mad scientist to some degree. Um, Alex has a wealth of knowledge, and I'm going to ask him lots of questions today to try and steal some of that and then share with that with some of you guys. So uh, thank you very much for jumping on, Alex. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's it's absolutely my pleasure. Like we just said before, Frank's a great guy. So if he says you're a good guy, I trust that, you know? I appreciate that. Um, first thing I wanted to go into is where I, I'm spending a lot of time and uh, personally like researching and just testing different things is like maximizing human performance in terms of from a mental uh, perspective. So he showed me some of the like the stuff he's doing in terms of like improving cognitive function. Um, how have you come about with some of the protocols and strategies that you implement and what do you find is most effective? Say if you're someone who's running multiple businesses and you want to try and perform at like peak performance with like mentally with being able to focus and clarity, what does that look like? Definitely. So first of all, credit to absolutely everyone I've ever met and every study I've ever read, because a lot of what I just do personally is I really believe you can learn from anyone and everything. So whether it's a bad study or someone who you may deem less intelligent, you know, than yourself, they're still teaching you something, you know? And so over the years, you just accumulate all this knowledge and you apply it with clients. You see what happens in the real world because we can read all the pharmacokinetic and dynamic books in the world. We can read all the studies in the world. When you go to apply it and all of a sudden something doesn't roll up, really doesn't matter how validated it is in the research if it doesn't actually get backed up and work in reality. So first of all, credit to everyone. There's protocols out there done by everyone, every different way possible. They are all valid. It's more dependent upon what spectrum you fall into. So I try and make sure we have some guidelines to talk about with everyone, right? If we look at pharmacokinetics and dynamics, so just how we metabolize drugs, ligands, hormones, everything on our body, we'll classify that as a whole. We have these different categories, right? We have these general population people. We have these sick to functional people. We have naturally athletic people. And then we have more of the enhanced athletic spectrum. And those are all four different ways and means of metabolizing drugs, hormones, ligands, supplements, again, all kind of all catch-all terms. So we're trying to break things up in that way. So we're looking at this specific question, looking at, okay, maximizing performance neurological for work-based purposes. I'm right there with you, man. When you're you know running the businesses, you are. You just want to be on your ball, on the game 100% every day. Like, I got three kids, three puppies. This job, I have my mentoring program. Like, you always, like, I refuse to have a day where I'm less than 110%. Not just neurologically, but emotionally. Like, I want to be happy. I want to have fun every day. So if you're not on the ball, tell me you're doing something wrong. It's 2023. We have every drug, supplement, protocol, everything out there in the world. Right now, while we're sitting here, I have a grounding mat on the ground. I finally found a good one, and I'm having my feet on that, just donating some electrons and taking care of that process. How cool is that? We have all these cool little gadgets in today's society. No one should be less than 110%, at least in my opinion. So long-winded way of getting this conversation rolling. Let's go into uh, optimizing for the business-based person. So let's kind of have some uh, clarifying points. First of all, would you rather talk about over-the-counter supplements, peptides, drugs? Like where is your audience really at? Uh, combination of all three. I think the 
peptides thing people have a lot of interest in. I think um, pharmaceuticals, things like modafinil, I think people have a lot of interest in. I think those are probably the two areas where people are the most curious because there's not a lot of information or research out about them like that's publicly available maybe. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. And so then we'll kind of, yeah, we'll be a little more specific with everything too as we go along because if you are an androgen using male or female, that's different than if you're a natural male or female. And then like we said, if you're sick, if you're just gender pop, it all kind of changes the conversation here. Let's start off with, I talk about it as getting your neurological reps in. So everyone goes to the gym to build their biceps. You have to curl to build your biceps. If you want to get better at a squat, you got to squat. It's the same thing with your mind. So everyone likes to read and do all of the basic things we think of as neurological reps. But at the end of the day, there's all this neuroplastic work that needs to be done to facilitate greater adaptation. So our, our neurological tissue, just like our myological tissue, so brain is the same as a muscle like our bicep. We are trying to hypertrophy it and improve it over time. So one of the things I have everyone do is a neuroplastic protocol. So we start off every day. It could be something as simple as some speech drills, some writing drills, working other language-based drills. And then um, there's this app called the Elevate app. There's tons of ones out there. I just personally latched onto that one. Absolutely love it. You can work on your math skills, your comprehension skills, your focus skills. Once you get to a 400 out of 400 score on those, it gets so freaking hard, but you keep adapting. It's just like with our muscle tissue. There really is no limit. And I'd say, actually, we have more potential with our neurological tissue than our myological tissue. Biceps can only get so big. We're not going to have 45-inch arms, right? But our brain, we have all this unlocked potential. So we're trying to hypertrophy different cortical uh, regions and areas. And we're trying to, over time, basically put out into our body what we want to be dumped out. So everyone has their own kind of neurological set, right? Me, as you can obviously tell, I'm a dopamine head. I've always just like, I just live in a world of dopamine. My brain is always bathing itself in dopamine. But what does that mean? I'm always excited, right? So right now, while we're talking, I'm sweating a little bit. My ears go a little bit red because I'm excited to have this conversation. I'm burning through acetylcholine like crazy, right? Think of acetylcholine as kind of being the baseline player, like kind of like food for our brain. I think that's the easiest way to describe it. Obviously, there's a high amount of neuromuscular junction activity, things like that. But if we think about acetylcholine as being the baseline player, we can see, ooh, in my neurochemistry, I'm going to need stuff like alpha-GPC to supply raw acetylcholine. I have tons of things over here, by the way. I'm going to also need something like an actual cognizant, so acetylcholine, to also help repair neurons that are also releasing acetylcholine. So you start kind of picking apart the person. We do these basic neurological games first to be our neurological reps for the day. So again, the, the stimulus to cause growth in our brain, one. Then we go ahead and look at the person's personality. Are they always the depressed person, the happy person, the angry person, the chill person, the person who's just like no emotions at all? Then you go about actually putting together their over-the-counter supplements, their drug protocol, and all that kind of cool stuff. That makes a lot of sense. I've tried the Elevate app before. I really, really like it. And also like for me, anything you can gamify, um, it helps people be adherent to it, I think. Oh, definitely, man. That that Elevate. And I grew up playing like World of Warcraft and Xbox and stuff like that. So it's a video game. Like you said, I freaking love it. It's, it's really cool. There's other ones out there too, but that's just the one I latched onto in the beginning. 100%. One of the um, drugs I've experimented with recently a bit is modafinil. I've used it a lot in like few years ago and started again with that um but at lower doses i was trying like 25 to 50 milligrams a, a day the only thing i say is when i was trying a low dose for like two weeks it's almost that i almost felt it was making me depressed from like if i didn't take it and i don't know if that affects like your dopamine receptors or something like that just skews it where you don't have that um rush almost <clears throat> 
So I took uh, modafinil, 100 milligrams, four hours and 27 minutes ago. I have my modafinil protocols on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, because it's lined up with when I have my biggest work day. So today's Wednesday. So for me, it's console calls all day. So I got to be on my game 100%, be able to speak and articulate and things like that. So when we're looking at modafinil, I, I love you said that because that's like literally one of my favorite neurological-based drugs. Let's look at it, okay? If we understand how it's actually working mechanistically, it does some really cool things. The biggest things it does is releases histamine from the lateral hypothalamus. Some people debate which part of the hypothalamus, but I think it's more the lateral. We see histamine release there. Histamine in the brain is different than histamine in your gut or in other parts of the body, by the way. We see arachidogenic neuropeptides being released. We see stimulation of localized alpha receptors, which is massive, localized, not systemic. Again, different things up here to different things than down here in your pecs or things like that. We see it actually driving up glutamatergic cascades or so downregulating GABA-based cascades. We have that excitatory arousal and all that kind of cool stuff. But the cool thing about it is given its structure and how it's utilized by neurological tissue, it's not like an Adderall constituent, where an Adderall would be that massive dump of neuroadrenaline in the frontal cortex, the big dump of dopamine in the striatum, and you get awesome focus, awesome energy, and Adderall's amazing as well, by the way. We can talk about that later if you want to. But what do you get? Emotional blunting. So blunting on emotional centers that you tend to not get with modafinil until you overuse or abuse it. So all of these drugs are awesome when used in uh, infrequent settings or even frequently, depending on the person. When it's used properly, you can only see positives. Problem is, like you said, microdosing modafinil. Some people I work with can only take five milligrams of modafinil. They literally will get a microgram scale. They'll smash it up, kind of like a drug dealer, lick the end of their finger and just do a little five milligram bolus. Other people I work with, there are like 800 milligrams, people on Wall Street, CEOs, things like that, where they're so sympathetic. It's like we're just trying to make their millions and then they're going to retire in five years type thing. So the spectrum's massive, right? Generally for people, I say anywhere from like five, they're like 50-ish milligrams, maybe all the way up to like 300, 400, 500. And we're trying to do it infrequently because like you said, we're not trying to have this overstimulation of histamine and orexin and all these other neuropeptides, uh, neuropeptide Y as well, chronically. We're trying to have them specifically when we need them. And with all the drugs we're talking about today, all these supplements, we're utilizing them when we need them. It's not like a multivitamin where you kind of always need a multivitamin, right? You always need like a fish oil, EPA, DHA, things like that. These nootropics, these peptides should be used on an as-needed basis. So modafinil could be used every day, could be also not, could be used infrequently. So for you, let's actually use your specific circumstance to help the whole audience learn. So what are you looking for in your week when you're busy days and what was your dose response in the past? Uh, busiest days and generally Monday to Wednesday, but I was trying to do like work flat out every day, 50 milligrams a day I was trying. And I think I actually went down to 25. Um, and then I did that for about two weeks straight every day. And then I noticed it was like almost like throwing my mood. I almost felt like I was getting depressed. So I stopped taking it, went away, came back and was fine. And then I took 100 milligrams for two days of the weekend where I had a big event I was holding and I felt right as rain afterwards, fine. So I don't know if there's a correlation between taking a low dose for a long period of time that threw me off um, where you're better off taking a higher dose, but in like shorter windows, perhaps. Yep. So this goes back to how you personally metabolize the drug, mm. how you cleave it, how you dismantle it. So for you personally, you know, a three day window is terrible. Truncate it to two days and you're good to go. So maybe yeah. you start doing like that Monday, Wednesday, and on Tuesday, you have something else. Maybe if you're super busy, like rhodiola rosea with a higher uh, rosetine content than silicides, you can more adapt yeah. to a more like parasympathetic environment. On those modafinil days, though, we'll be talking about beforehand, you're hyper-regulating your brain, more acetylcholine. 
whether that comes from alpha GPC, injectable choline chloride, that could be the acetylcholine, it could be any choline variation, it could be an acetyl L-carnitine that'll donate methyl groups to the entire acetylcholine synthetic process. Um, no matter what, when you are hyper-regulating your brain, you almost always need a choline donor or some kind of a choline product. You can't get like the headaches back your neck, right? That's literally yeah. your body trying to pull choline out from your neck, your traps, and then it'll go to your biceps and pecs and things like that. So for you, yeah, it sounds to me like maybe a Monday, Wednesday modafinil, low dose, maybe 50, 100 milligrams, paired with like an alpha GPC, maybe some acetylcarnitine, and maybe some other things we're going to talk about today. Cool. Is that what happens when you take modafinil is you get a headache is because there's not enough choline? Because like, for example, Friday had a horrendous headache, and that, that might have been why. Yeah, it's almost always an acetylcholine depletion problem or a glutamatergic-based problem. Usually not that, though, if it is more that glutamate problem. So you won't know this. It's that hyperexcitation. If you take modafinil and you are just like laser-wired, like if you did take something like an Adderall and you're getting a headache, that is most likely that overstimulation on the glutamatergic side of things. That'd be more something like if you have a new pept on here. That can ameliorate glutamate toxicity pretty quickly. So like 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams can do a lot. Cool. And one of the things people have with modafinil is they struggle to sleep sometimes when they take it. And it can obviously cause insomnia for some people. Yep. Um, is there anything you'd recommend to almost control that? Like you take a lot of melatonin before going to bed or anything else to try and taper that off? Actually, I <laughs> take it earlier. That's usually okay. the best way to do it. If you try and counteract it with other drugs, yes, you can. You could even bring in like a cerebrolysine as well before bed or some other things we'll talk about, like we're saying. Um, usually, though, move it back. Like I know for me, I have a good 13 hours and then it slowly tapers off. But I also realized that histamine dump the following day. So I'm someone who I've changed because I was a dumb kid growing up. I had a terrible memory. I have close to a photographic memory now. But a lot of that is from doing these modafinil therapies long term. So probably 50% of people will get this kind of dump of that erexin and histamine the following 48 hours as well. So it won't be stimulation. You can still sleep that night. So let's say I took modafinil this morning, which I did. I'll sleep good tonight because I took it early enough. But tomorrow, neurological activity is still hyper-regulated. I'm still hyper-focused. I'm still able to get into that modafinil-like zone because of that spillover of histamine. So for me, if you're someone like that, you respond well to that following day, dose it every other day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you can make those long-term changes. If you're trying to do that, I've meant to talk about this protocol for a while, so I might as well put it on here so you yeah. can get more views, right? Um, using modafinil to change your neurochemistry long-term has to be done in a microdosed fashion, tapered up and brought back down. Because what we're trying to do is hypertrophy the right portions of our brain and allow our body to accommodate to these new neurotransmitters and neurochemicals as a whole. So what happens is if you took 300 milligrams of modafinil today, what's going to happen? You're going to be hyperexcited, right? Like you said, you're at 25, 50, maybe 100 milligrams. That, that's not a good thing. But we eventually want to get your body releasing its own histamine, its own erexin neuropeptides. So that long term, you don't need modafinil to feel like you're on modafinil. It's still going to help you, but we're trying to just elevate your baseline. So every drug every supplement, every food, everything we do in life makes an epigenetic change, especially though the drugs. So the drugs can make a massive epigenetic change. If you take one shot of testosterone or take one pill of modafinil or whatever drug, you're forever epigenetically different. So we're changing our genetics from literally the ingestion of one single drug one time in life. One baby aspirin and you're different forever. Seriously, it could be good, could be bad, depending on uh, the environment and everything. But with this modafinil protocol to change your long-term memory, change your long-term focus and elevate that baseline from your normal here, modafinil, your way up here. We're trying to bring that baseline up to here so we're slowly getting better over time. That would begin something like an infrequent every other day setting, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, to make it easy. 25 milligrams week one, 
15 milligrams week two, and you work up until you get hyper excited, hyper stimulated, and you increase one more time that following week, depending on how hyper stimulated you got, then the following week, you bring it back down, you taper it back down. And after that protocol generally tends to last like six to 12 weeks, then you will notice an increase in your baseline uh, neural architecture and how you respond to daily tasks like focus, concentration. How much would you take per up each week? Would you do up each day you take it or each week? I would usually do it by half every week. So if you're doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you start off with 25 milligrams, go to 50, then 75, then 100. If you're starting at 50, then you go to 100, 150, 200. Usually tap out points right on 500-ish milligrams. If you need the 700 plus milligrams, there's probably an underlying problem or you just metabolize it poorly. So that's a different conversation though. So like Monday would be 25, Wednesday would be 50, Friday would be 75. Uh, no, oh, week at a time. Monday, so full week, week of 25 week. milligrams, okay, uh, cool, full cool, week of yeah. 50 milligrams, full week of 75, yeah. and then that's why it takes like six to 12 weeks. Okay, I'm, I'm going to try this. And what, what I really like is what you said, because it's my brain has like, I clocked this, is that the days after I've taken modafinil, it feels like my, my brain just runs faster. It's almost yeah, like it's yeah. completely altered everything. And I was like, I actually said it to somebody, it feels like it's like forced the synapses in my brain to fun, fire faster, almost like cleaned it through in a weird way to explain it. Yes, exactly. Okay, so that's the perfect segue into talk about cerebrolysine. So yeah. cerebrolysine is awesome, okay? Bunch of amino acids, bunch of neurotrophic factors. Okay, how it works is cerebrolysine goes across the blood-brain barrier, interacts with neurovascular units. In those neurovascular units, there's things like uh, neurons, oligodendrocytes, endothelial cells, tons of stuff like that. What those neurovascular units do is they regulate neuronal supply or neural supply, depending on what you're eating, what your verbiage is. What that means is that cerebrolysine essentially does everything from memory, learning, repair, concentration, amelioration of, you know, like there's like some kind of an opioid addiction, addiction or problem. Uh, you go down the list and cerebrolysine is kind of like the overall neurological player, right? So if we understand traditional neurotrophic cascades, there's this classic, there's a glial, and there's a somatrophic cascade. So in the research with cerebrolysine, um, you're going to find that it's filled with BDNF, so brain-derived neurotrophic factor, nerve growth factor. Those are more of the classical ones. The glial cell line is more like glial cell line-derived neurotrophic factor. But you can also stimulate via telmosartan low-dose or by simply learning something new after a very heavy work session type thing. So you can get that GDNF cascade from a couple different ways. What we always see lacking, though, with cerebrolysine supplementation when people utilize it is very little stimulation on that somatrophic side of things. So all of the growth hormones, whether it be vascular endothelial growth factor, whether it be IGF-1, whether it be fill in the name in that somatrophic cascade is always lacking in the cerebrolysine-based world. So cerebrolysine works amazingly well by itself, works even better if there's any stimulation on somatrophic factors. That could be growth hormone exogenously, MK677, ipomorelin, CJC, literally anything to drive that somatrophic cascade and get more growth factors released because my experience with cerebral license, it's awesome. Whether you're a person with Alzheimer's, dementia, I've reversed and regressed a lot of people with that. Also use it for a lot of athletes and general population people just upregulate their baseline neurochemistry. So it's awesome, but it works even better when you're counting for every neurotrophic cascade. Would you say with these as well that like one of the, I think people listening to this who are looking for like peak performance, you mentioned guys on Wall Street looking to make lots of money. Um, is there a way you can optimize your body brain so that you don't have to sleep as much? So for example, I imagine people have got someone's asked you this before. So like you could say, for example, sleep five hours a night, yet have 
the recovery of seven, eight hours. So you'd have an extra three hours a day to like take over the world, for example. Yep, a thousand percent, but there's always gonna be a tap out point. So we're yeah. not like some creatures out there that can sleep with half their brain keep the other half awake. Like we are not built yeah. like that. We will accrue sleep debt, which will accrue acetylcholine debt, which will then start actually atrophying the brain and other cortical regions and screws up your body. Sleep debt's terrible. But if we can improve sleep architecture and sleep quality, you can start sleeping less. So I've always been someone personally. I've always gotten up 3 a.m., 4 a.m. I can remember being in high school, no, grade school, actually. And I'd get up for the day. I'd do my chores first. I'd work out in the basement. Then I'd go to school for the day. And that was at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. Because I just, I don't know why I wanted to make money back then and work out. I just knew I did. I thought it was fun, you know. Um, I've always woken up early. And as I've gotten older, I'm sleeping less and less. My quality is going up. So if we're looking at increasing sleep quality and architecture, there's tons of things we can do here. There's a circadian aspect and there's more of like a sleep architecture aspect, which are kind of the same thing, but really not. Um, if you get into other pharmaceuticals out there, like a mirtazapine, where it's extremely well to reestablish sleep architecture, that's a drug a lot of people don't actually know about. It's more seen over in like the antidepressant anxiety based world. But in terms of reestablishing sleep architecture for people that have massive sleep debt, insomnia, things like that, it's on a whole other level. I freaking love that drug. But not everyone needs that. So if we're pulling our lens back, because I'm big in the pharmacological-based world, obviously, let's pull it back to like the peptide-based world. I feel like the two biggest players, because melatonin's awesome, uh, saffron's awesome. There's so many cool things. If we stick to like maybe two, I'd maybe go with like an epitalin or like a actual MK677. So epitalin is mainly the drug people look at for longevity. If you look at uh, the entire telomere conversation, essentially what we have is a space. So imagine two lines right here, right? You have spacer, DNA written, spacer on the other one, and then DNA written. Spacer will go away. That, that, that blank space will still be there, and then DNA will slowly unravel and basically deplete, die over time. What this does, what epitalin does, is it increases telomerase. So the, the, the drives in the activity to build up more DNA, right? <clears throat> we die once we get to 120 because telomeres shorten, and that's literally why we die. They fix that problem with things like epitalin and other drugs out there, so now they're looking at bringing people to 150, 160 years old, but 120 is the cap because of telomeres. We'll fix that. But epitalin does so many other things. So let's forget about the tel uh, telomerase conversation. What it does a great job is reestablish circadian architecture. So different than if I say sleep architecture, we're looking at kind of every kind of pattern. Whereas if we're looking at that more circadian side of things, it's releasing the right ligands and hormones at the right time. So very similar, but very different in application. So that baseline circadian player would be a low-dose, microdose epitalin at like 500-ish micrograms sub-Q before bed does a tremendous job. And usually, if you can do that long enough and get your body, again, like we talked about before, training your body to release the right things at the right time, you can go through week on, week off, two weeks on, two weeks off, three weeks on, three weeks off. Like You can really do this infrequently and change your circadian patterns over time. SR909 would be another one for the circadian thing, not as good as epitalin. That's more like the circadian side of things. If we're looking more at like the overall sleep architecture without mirtazapine, we're looking more at something like an MK677, which in the literature, it only stick, it, it singles out one phase of sleep. And to me, I've seen it on different uh, tracking panels to do both. So REM and deep sleep extremely well. If you look and understand how MK677 works on a growth hormone secrete receptor side of things, makes sense, right? So we were MK7 seeing- MK777 is a SOM, right? Technically, it's a growth hormone secretagogue, but I guess they mislabeled it as a SARM. At the end of the day, it's all semantics. Uh, I mean, yeah. technically, SARM is a selective androceptor modulator. It's not that at all. So I would definitely say more of a growth hormone secretagogue uh, yeah. uh, product. 
But we're looking at something like five milligrams, 10 milligrams. Take that with extra magnesium because it's relying upon magnesium ions for binding at that growth hormone secretor receptor. Um, but that low-dose NK and the microdose epitalin are probably the two go-to options if you're having problems. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. And do you think that um, adding in things like red light therapy can help in terms of giving you more energy so you have to sleep less? Oh, 100%. So I... <laughs> I'm going to say it so many times. I, lo I love everything, apparently. I love red light therapy because it's so freaking cool. I work out twice per day now. My second session's in my garage, and I have my red light therapy on the whole time. So what does it do? It interacts specifically with the electron transport chain to dump more ATP into the bloodstream, or into the system, I guess we'll call it. And what it does is adipocytes, right? They have that, that barrier. It weakens the cell wall of adipocytes to do what? Dump more triglycerides and fatty constituents into the bloodstream. So you're oxidizing it more. So you can literally use red light therapy in tons of different ways to reestablish circadian patterns, to drive more actual fat loss. If you want area specific, it will interact and that photonic exchange will interact with our bone, our mitochondria. So you can use it for healing based purposes. You can do it for freaking everything. So I prefer red light therapy more so in the earlier parts of the day, depending on what your schedule looks like. Cause the whole point is, Hey, wake up alert, ATP, dump that into the bloodstream, get going energy. You can use it before bed, just not the biggest fan. Would, is, would you say, this is a very strange question to ask, is red light therapy site specific? So for example, I have a right red light therapy unit next to me. So if I always have it on my right side, is that an issue or do you have to put it like, move it around or does it matter as long as it turns like it's systemic? It is site specific based on what you want. So if you are having systemic immune health-based problems, lay on the ground, point to the back of your neck, the base of the actual yeah. skull, of the base of the actual spinal cord. If you were having more of like a localized uh, damage problem, like you tore your calf, you were doing a healing peptide protocol, other things like that, you want it directly on the calf. Fat loss wise, directly there. If you're doing more circadian things, you really only need that actual uh, ocular based interaction to go through the suprachiasmatic nucleus, interact with brain and muscle, aryl hydrocarbon receptor, nuclear translocator like protein one, so BMAL1. You could do that like literally put up on the side of your desk and it will be photonically accepted through those ocular receptors. That'd be more for like the circadian thing. Um, they actually use it all the time to heal ocular-based damage. So if you just had eye surgery, we don't want it directly looking at it. But if it's like, you know, indirectly on your ocular tissue, it can help with healing a lot. So it is pretty specific to the area, but depending on the problem. Like if it's on the side of your head, it's not like you're going to hypertrophy that side of the brain only. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I thought it was a relevant question because I thought that sometimes. I always use it on my right side. I was like, I probably need to put it on my left. So I think it, it probably makes a difference. Yeah, is there anything rough. else in terms of um, from a mental cognitive point of view that I think has a big impact? So like for me personally, I find adding electrolytes as basic as it is later in the day seems to help in terms of focus. Is there anything in terms of from a nootropic protocol or even pharmaceuticals that is something else we haven't discussed? Yes. God, there's a lot. Um, let's start with the peptide thing because you said, you yeah, know, your viewers are like interested in all the peptide stuff, right? Um, dihexa. Everyone's heard of dihexa, right? It is a blood-brain permeable angiotensin-4 analog. So if we look at the renin angiotensin system, everyone thinks what? Blood pressure, kidneys, fluids, stuff like that, right? Fluid retention or excretion, whatever. Paracrine-wise, there's a renin angiotensin system in the central nervous system. How cool is that? When you look at angiotensin-4, is that IV, right? Because they use the Roman numerals, that's four, right? I always get it confused. Uh, angiotensin-4, that drives up a lot of the positive neurological based cascades that we can get with whatever reductions in inflammation, improvements in memory, focus, concentration, things like that. 
It does that specifically in the hippocampus, in the cerebellum, in the spinal cord, couple areas as well. But whereas we have cerebral lysine, which is like the overall repair player and overall just everything, dihexa to me, because they all do so many things, I'm trying to try and get a little more specific. Dihexa is more of like the memory and focus-based player, really more so on the memory, but you can tap into working memory better. It makes it easier to focus as well. So to me, we have like cerebral license overall in repair, dihexa as like the more memory, a little bit of focus, but then we have other things like selling and CMAX, right? So if we look into selling, super cool, modern after the uh, endogenous toxin molecule, right? That can be a major player to drive up BDNF and to drive... Uh, anxiolytic cascades to manage stress and anxiety better. So that does that through activating, I think it's literally 84 or more than 84 GABAergic genes. So selling can be an epigenetic genomic player. So non-genomic means acute, genomic means chronic in the world of pharmacology. You can take take one dose of selling to forever change your epigenetic structure with GABA-based systems. So selling can be the thing to calm you down and also get you to focus and also get you to learn, right? Because BDNF, brain-driving neurotrophic factor, is a big learning analog. CMAX on the other side, CMAX is the thing, uh, synthetic, if you look at the structure, if I remember, yeah, it's uh, amino acids four through seven of that adrenal corticotropin hormone. Then there's a, a, a tripeptide C-terminus. Really doesn't matter for the sake of this conversation. What it does really cool, though, is it drives up that dopaminergic and serotonergic learning cascade. So we have the neurotrophic factors over here, right? BDNF, GDNF, all that fun stuff. You'll learn over here, you know, one way. And we can learn tons of different ways, by the way. We also have in the prefrontal cortex over here a dopaminergic serotonergic metabolism conversation. So over here with dopamine and serotonin, those are the things in the analogs that day-to-day you are learning new good habits or learning new bad habits or unlearning one or the other. So we're trying to use this for learning from a dopaminergic and serotonergic side of things, which is really, really novel and cool and can complement the selling-based player. So the person who's trying to drive the focus, the memory tension, things like that, you could literally have the setup. So let's say for yourself, you have the hard work days, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, right? We talked about the modafinil. We talked about the alpha-GPC. You could have something like a cerebrolysin and something like maybe like a cell ink on your recovery basis. Let's just say Thursday's your recovery day, mm-hmm. right? You recover from because you have to drive recovery in the brain, just like in the body. If you train all the time, just beat your body into the ground, it's never going to adapt. It's all stress, adapt, stress, adapt. That's what we're trying to do. It's AMPK to mTOR, AMPK to mTOR. It's that cyclical process, right? Do the same thing with your brain. So on the days when you get to relax, do less work, less learning, maybe that's the day you drive repair and you bring down overall anxiety-based cascades, parasuberlysin, with something like uh, an actual cell link. So that was, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um I've never actually thought about that before in terms of giving your brain like days to actually repair, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Oh, it's massive. So it's super cool because if you are good enough and smart enough at this, you can whittle it down to the point wherever you just have to manage emotional centers. And that's where I'm at right now where if I have a physical problem, a myological problem or a soft tissue, I know how to recover for that. If I have a neurological, just overstrained, overworked, overlearning problem, like a CPO, I'm just running out of uh, uh, space in my brain to keep all this information, I know how to fix that. What I'm running into personally is the emotional capacity because I, I just, I love my job. I love my family. Everything I do, I just get so involved into it. That's draining emotionally to hear everyone's problems to care and to put their needs before yourself. That's draining emotionally. So I'm working on that. And I figured that out this past week, actually, and I just have to implement that. You can literally make it though. So as long as you know when to take a step back, you'll be golden. Because we all like to, in this world of neural enhancement, we want to burn the candle at 17 ends, right? Not No longer both ends. We're at 17, 20 ends. But if you never let that candle, whatever, add wax to it, I'm bad at metaphors, then it's never going to rebuild and recover. 
So we have to remember that if we're pushing it this hard, you got to recover just as hard. That could be food related because like a cheat meal, everyone loves cheat meals, right? Yeah. Why, why is a cheat meal so beneficial? It's not Release hyper. Serotonin? What's that? Releasing serotonin? Close. Dopamine. So that yeah. dopaminergic rush, like whenever you check your Instagram yeah. and, you know, whatever, you're looking at the latest bodybuilder or, you know, the, the yoga pants channel page or whatever. I don't scroll on Instagram anymore, so that's what I used to do. But you're getting that dopaminergic rush in recovery. That dopaminergic rush from a deflux meal, that's what I call it instead of a cheat meal, is going to be neurological dependent. So it's going to drive up neurological recovery. So I talk about the emotional centers, recovering and things like that. For me, if I have a deflux meal, emotional uh, uh, overall strain goes down dramatically. So you can use food, supplements, drugs. We've got a ton of tools. That's interesting. Is there a correlation? That's a good question. In terms of people sometimes have quote-unquote cheat meals or deflux meals or how would you phrase it, and then they actually end up dropping more body fat because oh, their body just relaxes. So I'll give you a good example. I have this weird thing. I like uh, cookies or like these baked blondie things. I, like, I ate one the other day, and I dropped like a kilo and a half like overnight. I think it's yeah. probably just it just probably took my body into a more relaxed state of actually having some like junk food that I wanted to have when I was like really tired after a long day. So the rate limiting factor in fat loss is mainly systemic fatigue. Whether it's training too much, working too much, not sleeping enough, not eating enough, that all accumulates fatigue. So if you have a meter of 100% and you're at 105% systemic fatigue, you will stop losing body weight, you will stop losing body fat, and your body will just hold and hold and hold. All of a sudden, you relax. Some people will smoke marijuana. Some people have that deflux free meal, whatever, and they'll drop and they'll wake up again, a kilo lighter, whatever lighter, because you were finally able to ameliorate that system of fatigue. That's, uh, so I, I find that's probably what happens to me a lot is where I have a very high stress environment. My, um, cause I'm very on it all the time that my, for me in a fat loss phase, my calories have to go probably much lower than they should do because my cortisol levels or stress levels are so high. And I, I tried this recently. A friend of mine owns a company in Dubai called UAE Peptides. Is like adrenal yeah, yeah. peptides. Is there anything you would do in terms of trying to almost like blunt that like stress response to the body that can uh, store fat loss perhaps? Actually, yeah. We talked about one of them. Selenk. Selenk will yeah, modulate okay. those cortisol-based patterns and drive up antidote cascades extremely well. And another one that I'll go off topic because we've given a lot of love to peptides and everything and drugs. Look at the over-the-counter supplements like saffron. Saffron with a high actual uh, crocin to saffron content saffron. product. Saffron. Absolutely amazing. A lot of the products out there are pretty terrible, though, in terms of a dosing-wise. So we want higher crocin, lower saffron. The crocins are the big players here. What we're seeing with a higher and uh, good quality saffron product, we can establish better uh, melatonin cycles. It can be a good dopaminergic and GABA-based actor, and it will overall pull down and normalize cortisol patterning. You know what else does this, too? What else manages glucocorticoids and cortisols pretty well? exogenous insulin could be a lantis player first thing in the morning you could literally have this set up so we can have something like let's say upon waking a low dose literally for lantis you could be like 10 iu sub nothing crazy lantis in the morning if you're an athlete it's gonna be dropped off by midday if you're gen pop it'll last the entire day so lantis in the morning you're gonna need something midday let's just say we bring in um we'll save saffron for later on in the day let's say um cortisol is bringing the selling midday 100 200 micrograms and then before bed, we bring in something like 30 milligrams of a good saffron-based product. You're normalizing cortisol patterns throughout the day. You're blunting them at the right times. And you're letting them peak at the right times as well. Because you know, we're trying to bring, if you're up here on the cortisol patterning, it has that nice curve effect. We're trying to bring it back down to normal. And there's other drugs out there too, but that's a very simple protocol. 
So I've not thought that before. So you can use Lantus to bring down the cortisol levels. Yeah, yeah. All glucocorticoids, if you look at being hyperinsulinemic, and that's the other thing too, your brain is based on what? To process all these things to make these neuroplastic changes. Insulin sensitivity. So you, mm. everyone thinks insulin sensitivity for fat loss or muscle gain. You're not going to make any neuroplastic changes without having a good brain-based level of insulin sensitivity. So I, I said before how I train twice per day. A big reason for that is because I have gotten significantly smarter. My work output, productivity, and efficiency has gone up from having two sessions per day because neurologically, I am so insulin sensitive that my brain is able to pick up all the information, store it where I want it, recover. You got to manage oxidation, but that's pretty simple to do. Um, but there's tons of things you could do out there to increase neurological insulin sensitivity. One of them is exogenous insulin. So would you recommend that for physique athletes or would you just recommend that from people who are looking for mental high performance in terms of the, the two-a-day training in that respect? Anyone. Honestly, yeah. anyone. Um, like right now, if we look at like just the Lantis conversation, I have, uh, I'm working with a team of grandmaster chess players and half of them have very poor neurological insulin sensitivity. For as good as they are, that's their rate limiting factor. So you have a low dose uh, Lantis in for some of them. That's wild. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. Does... I mean, um, it, does growth hormone have any impact in any of that when you start, uh, start adding that into the mix as well? Yeah, so that's going to also modulate that cortisol and that overall glucocorticoid pattern, number one. It's also going to do what? Dump glucose, free fatty acids into the bloodstream. So you're going to have that neuronal supply. And what else does it do? We talked about before, those neurotrophic cascades, mm -hmm. that somatrophic side of things. It's going to supply every single growth hormone uh, factor and analog you're going to need to ultimately achieve your fullest potential. So whether it be like a vascular endothelial growth factor, or driving hemodynamics to the brain, things like that, that will also improve uh, brain-based insulin sensitivity. Okay. And if someone's on the, say, uh, to go to a slightly different tangent, talking about looking for maximizing fat loss, would you say dealing with the cortisol is one of the first things you'd look at to make sure that they can actually get the, the weight shifted? Pretty much, yeah, because, I mean, everyone can do two hours of cardio a day. Everyone can starve themselves, and some people have to. It's a shame, but I've had some people eat 500 grams of carbs into the show, male or female, and other people eat, you know, zero, like literally eating air, having to starve themselves because that's just their epigenetic structure and what they've responded well to. But there also is the hormonal and the neurochemical side of things. So if we can manage that cortisol, it's usually a good place to start. So if anyone out there is not losing fat and they are starving themselves – Go out and have a free meal. That's usually the first thing you do. That's, what's interesting about that is it's counterintuitive to what you'd expect. Yes, but no. So everyone goes down the calories in, calories out conversation, and they argue thermodynamics, but they're looking at steam engine mechanical thermodynamics. They're not looking at biological thermodynamics. Biological thermodynamics, if that were the case, let's look at um, – what's a good example? Um, gluconeogenesis, Right? Yep. Look at that conversion process, A to B to C, all has to be equal. doesn't work like that. Look at the energetic process it takes to go from a non-glucose constituent to glucose. Requires X amount of energy. Requires less energy to go back through that process or more. Um, so either way, A does not equal B. And all of a sudden, it throws that single conversation out of the window. Then you have the whole argument of macronutrients. You have the argument of all those other vitamins and minerals. You have so many things to argue. It's not calories in, calories out. Calories in, calories out can dictate body weight to a degree, but what dictates body composition, health, neurological performance is the, the, the fine details of nutrient timing, nutrient density, and all that kind of stuff. So there's nothing wrong with calories in, calories out. It's just for a very small demographic. It's a very, uh, try not to be mean. 
it's a very introductory way to think about nutrition. I think that's the best way to say it. Yeah. Uh, layman's terms, right? That's like one way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because not everyone wants to know the stuff that I do. I get it. Like, I'm the weirdo uh, reading everything out there. Like, I get it. Some of it can be complex. So, hey, if you're just starting off nutrition, calories in, calories out. If you're 400 pounds, just count your calories. Who cares? Then graduate and count calories and protein. I have a lot of people doing that. Then graduate and go, maybe I'm counting my total calories and protein, and now let's make sure my healthy fats are there for overall beta oxidation lipolysis, for vascular health, for cardiac health, for all that fun stuff. Now let's go a step further. Let's make sure we get some fruits and vegetables in there. And you slowly build and build. Here's a question for you. So um, one of the big things I say, like even like working with Frank, he's the leanest I've ever seen in the best shape. And one of the things he mentioned was using the peptide uh, MOTS5, I think for insulin sensitivity, which I've been- yeah, which I've been dabbling trying. What have you? What would you say is the the big difference you do with a lot of the clients when they come to you in terms of like um, adding muscle tissue whilst improving body composition simultaneously? Because that seems to be one of the big things you do. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, first of all, by the way, Frank's looking big, isn't he? He's his biggest and yeah, leanest exactly. I think we've ever seen it. He just sent me his last check, and he was out at uh, the N one camp, and yeah. he just looks like a beast. He's really coming along. Um, yeah, so I feel like for me, it's really looking at rate limiting factors. So usually people come to me and they have no problem. They have the androgen conversation figured out. Like they have their, it's either a testosterone and then a DHT or a 19 or they know how they respond genetically to those things. But everyone's usually running into rate limiting factors, right? So rate limiting factors like the Chatelier's principle. It's basically trying to fix your weakness to improve your strengths. So if everyone's good at just driving baseline protein translation transcription with androgens. What about the underlying enzymes, underlying mitochondria, underlying ribosomes, and all those underlying structures? Think of it as a city, city up here, all the underlying electrical plumbing and stuff down here. You can only build a city so big and so wide before you run into underlying underground problems. So they come to me, I say, oh, okay, we're missing this here, that there. It could be a fuel supply problem, exogenous insulin or metformin or some kind of an insulogenic-based player, right? could be an overall recovery-based issue, neurological, myological, soft tissue, more of a somatotic-based player. That could be growth hormone, MK, IPAM, all the different recovery analogs out there from a growth hormone side of things. Then we just go down that list for everything. So when people come to me, I look at what they're good at, put that in this column. Okay, we're going to keep doing this. This is what they're doing, what works. What are they bad at? Fix what they're bad at, and all of a sudden, you improve progress dramatically. How do you think training adaption comes into that? So even like... I would say uh, I, my body probably struggles with managing stress levels. So I have reduced my training volume down to four days a week and have seen a lot more uh, progress and success with that over the last three months or so. Is that something you see frequently or would you prefer more consistent training? Yeah, no. Um, changing the train to match your lifestyle is perfect. At some point, though, if you want to keep progressing, you're going to have to do better. Not more, but better. So that be yeah. more load on the bar, more reps, more sets, something's going to have to improve. So maybe that will be you going with the low volume, high intensity. The low volume, high intensity, though, thing, that drives a lot of central nervous system neurological based strain, whereas the higher volume is more of the myological soft tissue based strain. And yeah, you can argue that too with the soft tissue, but you're going to have these time periods where life is going to be up here. So train volume has to be down here. As long as you're shifting those patterns, you're pretty much good to go. If you get really good at handling your pharmacology, though, you can make it so that you can still train high volume or high whatever compared to what you're doing now, make more progress because you're managing the back end of stress. 
So usually it's manage what's causing the stress. Sometimes if it's like, hey, I have to work 80 hours this week, guess what? You're not weight training that week. You don't care about your fitness goals that week. You're worried about your neurological and work-based performance. So it's really trying to pivot. One of my best friends, he passed away earlier this year. One of the greatest men I've ever known. He taught me the word pivot. You know, the older you get as an adult, the better you can pivot, the better life's going to be. So like if I have 20 podcasts to do this week, I don't care about training. I'm going to focus on that because that's for business that puts food on the table for my family type thing. But if I have a normal week, I'm going to be training twice a day. You know what I mean? So pivoting is the best thing and not being so rigid in your overall regimen. You have to be structured, but you have to be able to actually pivot depending on the time, especially if you're trying to be a successful CEO, businessman, something like that. Would you say the same even with your nutrition sometimes? Because I... I think some people are almost too anal and sometimes with the nutrition that it stresses them out more than if they just went with the flow a little bit more. Obviously, you want people to be accurate with what they're doing, but I think some people cause so much OCD and stress around food that it probably causes more harm than good in some respects. I think it's context, but I do agree with what you're saying. Yeah. You're six weeks out from a physique show. No, you got to yeah. stick to it. Like be in, be, you know, be in conversation with your coach to make sure there's some flexibility or whatever they need. But if you're about to compete, that's a different conversation. If you're off season, general population, CEO, you have to be flexible and be able to pivot. So in those kind of situations where we're not competing in six weeks, eight weeks, whatever, if we're out of prep for powerlifters, strongman, bodybuilder, whatever, out of that scenario, have a baseline set program. And then if you have to pivot for the day, go ahead. Like uh, yesterday was a good example. I just trashed myself with work. I just expended so much emotional energy. So last night I ate some extra food. I ate extra food that drove a dopaminergic response. My son, we actually got my son these new they're Nature Valley bars and there's almond butter and cinnamon in the middle. They were amazing. I had six of them. They were absolutely incredible. Remember though, I'm 250 pounds, trained twice a day, hill sprints, all that fun stuff. So I can get away with that amount of food because I know that's what I needed. So if, as long as people can be responsible adults and do use it in the right context, definitely have a plan, but then pivot when you need to. With the training twice a day, is that two resistance training sessions or is one cardio-based, one resistance training? So the way I have it set up right now, and keep in mind for everyone, I'm not trying to be the best bodybuilder in the world anymore. I'm trying to literally half it all, like we're talking about being superhuman at everything. The morning session is two hours of traditional weight training, could be a lactic, could be glycolytic. And then the second session starts off with doing weighted hill sprints. So I have a weighted vest, 30 pounds. Oh my God, is it? It's hard. It's hard. Absolutely awesome, but it's hard. My calves are killing me. I'll do hill sprints midday, come back, and go into my gym and have another weight training session, more pump-based, and I'll have that actual red light therapy on. So I'm getting more of the neurological and more of the overall ATP-based cascade there. Good amount of hemodynamic flow and a really good pump. Um, I've always had small arms my whole life. My goal this year, because they grew over the past couple of years, I'm trying to get them 21s. And I've always been like, for the last year or two, it's been like 19, 20, and then now I'm going back to 19 and 20. I know they're close because everything's fitting so much tighter. So if I get 21 by the end of this year, I'm going to be happy, you know? But so right now I'm having more bicep, more tricep, but also some more delt and ab work in that second session because that's what I'm trying to bring up. Okay. And something I think is a, an interesting question is, do you think there's a, like a limiting rate in terms of how much muscle certain people can hold and can gain? So you mentioned obviously like arms are something you struggle with. Would you say that's just genetic predisposition or do you think that's a maybe a lack of attention of training to that specific area? Actually, both. There's obviously the genetic conversation. When you're looking at drug usage or when you're looking at all the things we have to, you know, sight enhance an area, we can bring up any lacking body part. The problem is, though, how they're going to look. So, like, I got thick bones. I had terrible insertions. So even though my arms are close to 21s by now, 
they don't like, they look big in certain poses. Like my side chest looks awesome, but my insertions on that inner head on both sides, I do a front double bicep. They, they look terrible and they're close to 21s. And I also have very small triceps. So there's also that, how they're going to look, the insertion, so many things there, but anyone can bring up a lacking body part, but it's not everyone's going to be able to get 21 inch arms or have a huge barrel chest. There is also that, but you can always improve from where you're at. Do you, is there any benefit to site specific drug usage, for example, when people talk about PEDs and even like uh, growth hormone, like I remember, I didn't I don't know if it's Jim Bro bullshit, but I remember someone telling me that um, Jay Cutler was taking growth directly into his side delts and stuff like that to try and get him to grow. Is there any um, benefit to people using things site specifically to try and enhance the area? Yeah, definitely. The biggest ones would obviously be traditional site enhancement oils, not the yeah. Vaseline or the mineral yeah. oil or whatever you see on the YouTubes with the big bruised arms. That's If you look at people that do it right, it just it looks beautiful. It really does. So site enhancement oils. You can also use something like an IGF-DES. So that will cause, that will spark that maturation process of myocytes in that area locally. So with that protocol, you have to do it in a post-workout, highly traumatic setting. You first have to upgrade growth hormone receptors. So you have to have some kind of a growth hormone instant stimulus. You wait 60, 90 minutes, and then you bring in your DES. You can do it just post-workout without any of that. You can also do it pre-workout. If you're trying to potentially get the maximum benefits, we're more looking at like 60 minutes post-workout, also 60 minutes after a growth hormone or insulin bolus to upregulate those receptors and allow them to be receptive. Um, but even uh, something like red light therapy, you know, it can drive up localized mitochondria-based activity. So you can potentially have an IGF-DES, uh, an, an SEO, and something like a red light therapy protocol to bring up lacking body parts. Again, though, it's something like a DES, like SEOs, they work quick yeah. and they stay there because what we're looking at is it's causing inflammation. So you're having these fatty acids come in and fuse intramyofibril constituents. So we're having them actually drive up inflammation chronically to slowly build muscle tissue over time. So when you stop taking SEOs, then there, there's no oil in there. If you did it right, if you did it wrong, people that abuse SEOs is your body will encapsulate the oil. And then if you actually stick with the needle, you can pull out all that oil. Those are the people that get necrotic tissue. And the biceps actually will have to be surgically cut open and things like that. So use versus abuses massively. But with IGF-DES, it's a long-term player. The IGF, or rather the myocyte maturation process, building and growing an actual myocyte, a muscle cell, takes a while. So if you do a four, six-week course of IGF-DES, it's going to take, you know, later towards the end of that measure cycle to really show the full fruits of your labor, so to speak. Okay. The, the last question I'll ask is probably the only other system we haven't really gone through is in terms of, uh, from a digestion perspective, I know something a lot of people struggle with, and I think as they get older, um, maybe flags up more. Do you have a certain protocol you do with uh, clients or yourself, say like first thing in the day or anything to really just optimize digestion to like eliminate bloating, bloating and help people like get a smaller waist in particular, maybe competitors? Yeah, definitely. So there are so many peptides out there that are awesome. Um, the LO37s and things like that. They're amazing. Let's look at actually the easiest, probably the biggest bang for your buck, and it's called biocidin. So biocidin, you can buy it in a little liquid. Um, it was knocking off antibiotics out of the market a couple or whenever it came into existence. I forget when it did. It's been around for a while now. What it does is it'll actually break up biofilms. So if you had mold exposure, because I just had someone who had this, mold exposure, you got rid of it, but then all of a sudden you're having mold-like-based symptoms. That mold is still in your body, sitting there, encased in a biofilm. That biofilm means the immune system can't break it, can't open it up, can't remove it. So biocidin will break up that biofilm, dump it into the system. Problem is you're going to also get those mold exposure-based problems because now it's into the system. So you have to remove it. So they also have a, rem a remove-based product to also pull that out with 
activated charcoal and things like that. But biocidin will also repopulate positive gut bacteria as well. And it will downregulate negative gut bacteria. So biocidin at like five, like right now I do five drops. It comes in a little liquid dropper. I do five drops morning and night every single day for long-term gut health benefits. And then if you do have any kind of exposure to pathogens, you could bring that in and the remove product to pull those, uh, if it's mold, pull that out of your body. Um, and then repopulating proper gut bacteria and things that feel like a SIBO. Tons of things yep. over there. L 37 could be a massive one. Depends on the degree and severity of your problems. If you do have an actual SIBO-based flare-up, that could be anywhere from like 100 micrograms per day to like a couple milligrams per day, depending on the severity. Um, the ranges on peptides are really, really crazy. Things can be microdosed or macrodosed, depending on the uh, severity of issues. Okay, that's pretty wild. Um, you seem to know everything inside out that I've ever could even ask. <laughs> is there any? Is there any questions I should have asked that I haven't asked, which is a good question to ask? Um. I guess how I got this awesome hair, right? I think it looks pretty yeah. cool. It's That's all genetic, though. So, <laughs> and actually, I've always responded well to every single exogenous somatrophic base player. So exogenous growth hormone. Right now, I'm just taking MK677, low dose for that cascade, mainly for the neurological recovery that night um, yeah. with some magnesium L3 and 8, really recover for the workday and things like that. But yeah, like my hair, skin, nails, they've always grown fast because I've responded so well to all growth hormone analogs. So I know for me, that's not my rate limiting factor. Shatley's principle, like we talked about, I always responded well to those so I can microdose them and get massive benefit. I can also macrodose them and get macro benefit, but uh, you know, depends on what you want to do. Yeah, awesome. That was uh, awesome, Alex. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, is there anywhere people can find out more about you, some of the protocols and potentially work with you in the future? Yep, uh, theprepcoach.com. And then go to Instagram and it's Alex, A-L-E-X underscore K-I-K-E-L, Kickle. Uh, I've seen some awesome awesome protocols and stuff you've got um, shared on there. So make sure you check them out. Head over to the website as well. Uh, Big thank you to your time. I've made a page of notes here of stuff I want to do. So big thank you. And to everyone listening, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Give Alex a follow. Share your stories you find interesting. And we'll see you next episode soon.